So as we think about that psalm, I wonder, what's the emotion that you most associate with worship? When you think about gathering here on Sunday morning, is there an emotion that you most often feel? For many of us, perhaps, worship is most closely associated with joyfully singing God's praises, as we have done here this morning. And we who gather here have a lot to be thankful for and a lot to praise God about, right? Yet still, for some, the joyous, praise-filled tenor of worship might make coming to church seem hard when we are going through a difficult time personally or in light of tragedies or disheartening events and happenings in our broader society. Maybe that resonates with some of you here this morning. This morning, the scripture that we read is a psalm of praise. Sing to the Lord, bless God's name, give to the Lord glory and power. It reminds us that we are, in the words of another psalm, to enter God's courtyards with thanksgiving. The psalm is made up of three sections. Each has a call to give God praise and then gives reasons why we are giving God praise. And if you look closely, as you move through the psalm, it calls for more and more of ourselves to be given. What starts with verbal praise, sing, tell, declare, eventually becomes fully embodied worship, bringing offerings, coming into the courts, worshiping and bowing down. Now, I know our worship services here aren't maybe as full-bodied experiences as some other traditions. We aren't always so, uh, so active up singing and praising with you know, hands raised. We might not uh, have such outward displays of emotion. But I think that um, as, we, as we think about this, uh, this psalm, I love that it is a Sunday when we're going to be hearing about um, our church partnership with the church in Guatemala. It's such a joy to have Doris and her family here uh, to share with us. But what you might not hear about in the mission moment is that worship is often one of the most powerful experiences our team has when we're in Potsdam. And it, for me, it's, it's one of those experiences of that full-bodied worship. Worshiping with our brothers and sisters in Christ at Esmirna Methodista has been one of the most beautiful experiences of that. Worship that goes from singing God's praises straight from the heart to crying out to God, sometimes kneeling on a concrete floor for an hour, tears streaming, praying fervently for God's mercy and compassion and intervention. It's truly an experience of God's presence. Psalm 96 also reminds us that worship is not something that is just for us humans. What beautiful imagery it has of creation praising God, the earth, the sea, everything in it, the countryside and everything in it, the trees all joyfully giving honor to the Lord of the universe. But if we look closely at the whole of this psalm, it is a reminder that the Lord created all and is above all, and God is especially above the idols we make for ourselves, the idols it talks about of the nations. When we think about what it means when it says in verse 13 that God is coming to establish justice in the world, rightly, and establish justice among the people fairly, it gives us reason to praise, yet it also invites some other emotions. It reminds us that there are times when we have given our hearts and our allegiance 
to idols, to things that are not God. And we need to readjust our priorities and our loyalties. The psalm reminds us that we must confess the ways we've participated in and benefited from injustice and inequity. It causes us to lament that God's justice and righteousness are not always fully evident in the world. As we've mentioned in previous weeks, this sermon series that we're in right now was created from a devotion that Colette Krantz, our children's minister, shared in a staff meeting um, back this spring. And it included 18 ways that we can pray for our church. This week's sermon touches on a petition that says that we pray that the church's songs would teach members to biblically confess, to lament, and to praise. I believe Psalm 96 is a perfect song to help us explore those themes of confession and lament and praise. Now, if you do some research on Psalm 96, you'll find some articles that use the opening verses as an argument for why we need to allow space for contemporary new songs and worship. I believe God loves all our different ways of worshiping and is delighted with new creative songs and lyrics. But what many scholars say is that the command to sing a new song that we read in verse 1 was not literally a command to compose a new tune, but an acknowledgement of a new era or a new, new way of being in history. So if we think about that in the context of this prayer, it is not only about the songs that we sing in worship, leading us in confession, lament, and praise, but the song of our life together. Are we giving space to admit to ourselves and to one another the ways we aren't living up to the fullness of what God wants for us? Do we make room to lament, to cry out to God for the things that break our hearts and for the things in the world that break God's heart? And yet, do we also still find reason to give God thanks and to offer praise to God? One of the things that I love about scripture in general, and the Psalms in particular, is that they model for us how to express the full range of human emotions. That our faithful forefathers and foremothers not only praised God, but were able to express anger and sorrow, to cry out for help, and even to call God out for not intervening more quickly in the face of injustice. One of my favorite bands is a group called Enter the Worship Circle, and their lyrics are are taken often directly from the Psalms. They have a song that's based on Psalm 10, and the chorus says, wake up, God, move yourself. Wicked men, crush your children. We pray, we wait. How long until you say, never again? The verses go on to say, God, you feel the grieving of the broken the crying of the orphan, you see the bruises of the victim, and you hold them in your hands, and you listen to their prayers. And the song then ends with the affirmation, you are king forever, your kingdom, come on down. But before it gets to that word of acknowledging God's kingship, the chorus is not afraid to confront God and to remind God, and and maybe the singers as well, that God listens to those who are suffering. And God has promised to act and to make all things right and just. This movement, what may seem like a roller coaster of emotions, is common to the Psalms. Rabbi Abraham Heschel said, to worship is to expand the presence of God in the world. 
God is transcendent, but our worship makes him imminent. Of course, as Christians, we believe that God has come among us through Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. But I think it's a beautiful image that by worshiping God, we actually bring God nearer. Or maybe a better way of saying it is that in worship, it's one of the ways that we open ourselves and experience God's nearness. Yet, many people have trouble experiencing that nearness in worship. Often when I talk to adults and my age and younger who grew up in church but have struggled to connect in church services as adults, one of the things I hear most often is that they struggle with church because so often the church remains silent in the face of suffering and injustice in our world. Sure, the church says God loves the world, but the message being conveyed by churches often and the message that's conveyed by our talk and our actions reflects that God's love for the world might not be that deep or that strong or even that interesting. To many young adults, God's love as evidenced by the church seems more like something sentimental than passionate, more a warm and fuzzy feeling and maybe even a distraction from the work that needs to be done rather than a compelling spirit that guides us bravely to live and to work, waiting for the day when God's justice will fully arrive. Our worship in church does not often enough lead us to confess and lament the specific ways that the world is inequitable and unjust. We treat confession like it's a weakness, while scripture says that confession is the way to freedom, and that unless we confess our sins, they will maintain power over us. It's like we fear that if we bring up sins from our past, or our family's past, or our nation's past, that we'll continue to be burdened by that overbearing weight of those sins, maybe even get sucked back into them rather than freed from them. But if we don't confess and grieve what's going wrong, that often means that we aren't able to act to right the wrongs through our actions. Confession is a mirror by which we look at ourselves as the enemies of God we once were before Christ, before Christ claimed us through the cross and our baptisms. Confession is also often the painful and vulnerable means by which God opens us up in order to heal us. Just like how a cancer-removing surgeon cuts in order, to in order that the patient might heal, rather than living with a cancer quietly growing inside. And just to be clear, when I say confession, I'm not necessarily talking about coming formally to a pastor or a priest and admitting all the things that we've done wrong. Confession is simply naming the ways that we have fallen short and the ways that we're not living in line with what God desires for us and for the world. Confession is best practiced in community with people around us people whom we share life with, where we know each other well enough to encourage one another and to hold one another lovingly accountable. It is in this context of community that we can also see how God's coming justice that's talked about in Psalm 96 can be both comforting and discomforting. One of the passages I find most challenging in scripture is the parable that Jesus tells where he gives a vision of what it will look like when the Lord comes to establish this justice on earth. 
It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. In Luke 16, Jesus describes a rich man who had all the worldly comforts and a poor man named Lazarus who sat begging at the rich man's gate. When they both die, the rich man is tormented and Lazarus is carried to a place where he is comforted at Abraham's side. The rich man, discouraged by the denial of his request for Abraham to send Lazarus to help him find relief from the burning flame, begs Abraham to let him go and warn his five brothers to repent, to change their hearts and lives so they can avoid this torment when they die. But Abraham denies this request too, saying, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Jesus' teaching here challenges us to examine ourselves closely. We might typically think of ourselves as being recipients of injustice and others being the one who will be punished because of it. But the reality is that many of us here today have experienced our fair share of justice. We may have experienced injustice as well, but compared with the majority of the world, maybe even compared with a large part of our own society, we've experienced more fairness and far more of what we think we deserve than not. God has already given us enough to be able to decide, are we living comfortably while others live uncomfortably? Is our comfort at the expense of those who remain in suffering? From the world's perspective, we should strive to shelter ourselves from pain and suffering. But as Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are you who hunger now because you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now because you will laugh. But how terrible for you who are rich because you've already received your comfort. How terrible for you who have plenty now because you will be hungry. How terrible for you who laugh now because you will mourn and weep. These are hard words for us to take literally. As most of us this week have not had to wonder how we will feed ourselves and our families. We sit in comfortable homes and cars with jobs that pay us more than enough to meet our basic needs. We often try to dodge this issue, justifying our standing, thinking, well, I'm not rich, I'm not the 1%, I'm just middle class. But when I think about the way that half of the world lives on less than $2 a day, when I think about our friends in Potsdam, many of whom live on a household income of like $1,200 a year for families that might have five to eight people, I would guess that most of us, myself included, have to say yes, if those are the terms, we are indeed rich. I don't know about you, but hearing these words from scripture, I squirm a little, thinking about what it means that the Lord is coming to establish justice in the world rightly, and to establish justice among all people fairly. And if we hear these words of Jesus and, and are living a life that makes us afraid of the day when God turns the world right side up, it means we need to examine ourselves. The singing of this psalm, the reading of this hymn is part of how we can prepare ourselves and ask God to help us get on the right path. The good news is that the kingdom that the Lord is bringing into being is based upon those with plenty sharing, as God does, out of our abundance. In God's kingdom, the poor don't have more because the rich have the same as they always have, 
and the rich have the same as they always have. The poor have more because the rich have less, so that everyone has what they need. So how can we start bringing that kingdom into reality? One of the ways we can sing a new song to the Lord is to live into the reality of God's justice now. We know a day is coming when God will reverse all sadness and pain in the world, and this is something to be celebrated. According to this psalm, it is not a cause of terror, nor shame, or numb waiting. It is a cause for joy. Our excitement, our longing, our worship because of God's justice coming then, it comes from us dwelling in places of suffering and injustice, walking alongside those who are struggling at the hands of injustice, or through experiencing injustice ourselves. This is what makes us long for the justice that God is bringing. It is what motivates us to start living in keeping with God's sense of justice. The Hebrew verb tense that's translated he is coming in verse 13 can also be translated he has come and he comes. And that really captures the fullness of the truth here. Christ has come and through his life, death, and resurrection has established justice and given us the standard by which he will judge the people with equity. He continues to come to establish justice through acts of justice and faithfulness that we do because we are the body of Christ and we have a role to help further this work. And he is coming one day to bring it all to completion and fulfillment. It's both an already and in progress and not yet all at the same time. So how do we live our lives accordingly? Not just in worship, but in our everyday lives. Looking at the first three verses of Psalm 96, how do we tell of God's saving work every single day and declare God's wondrous story, works among the peoples? One of the ways we can do this is by telling the stories that we see and hear that show that God is at work in the world in miraculous ways and in mundane ways, through human actions and through things that seem beyond explanation. And this leads us into thinking about how we can live according to the truth of God's establishing justice on the earth. This involves us creating the very stories we want to tell by living out the justice and righteousness that we believe God desires to bring about. We can look for ways to look out for others, especially those who are vulnerable. We can speak up and take action to bring about just resolutions and conflict, of, to conflicts and problems in our community and world. We can work to create refuges of peace and abundance for those who need it by sharing what we have, not just sharing our leftovers, but sharing sacrificially. When I think about what this can look like, I think of a dear friend of mine who used to be my neighbor. Um, his name's Pastor Cheke, and he works so hard to faithfully pastor a small congregation here in Boone, and he does this without much glory or fame or even a salary. He's bivocational. He works long hours as a landscaper to provide for his family, yet he still considers ministry his full-time vocation. From my privileged position in full-time salaried ministry, it seems an injustice to me that he has to work so hard and can't devote as much time to ministry as he would like. 
And then last year, when his family lost their newly renovated home to a fire and did not have the luxury of insurance to help rebuild it, I lamented the injustice of it all. Yet, through this situation, I got a glimpse of what God's coming justice looks like by, by seeing his congregation and the community rally around him. People who struggled to make ends meet sh showed his family an outpouring of love and generosity. Laborers who work 50 to 60 hour weeks devo are devoting their weekends to rebuilding his home, uh, building a new home for him and his family. When God's justice is manifest, their lives will be rebuilt, and we can be part of it. We can be part of other situations like that in our community. My favorite sung rendition of Psalm 96 follows the command to sing a new song literally by adding two verses to the end of what we find in Scripture, imagining what God's coming justice would look like in our world today. The first verse of those two new verses says, Gated communities will open their doors, and homelessness and loneliness will be no more. And trailer parks and HUD homes will host the feast. Country clubs will have dessert and throw pool parties. Everyone will be welcome, no matter where you're from. And we'll all walk with the Lord in the garden. So I wonder, how can we put ourselves in the places where we can see this coming justice? How can we open our homes and our lives to those who are experiencing suffering and injustice and through that experience come to see the saving work that God is doing in our lives and our world? What do you imagine this looking like in your life? What do you need to empty from your life to make room for what God wants to do? What do we need to confess and lament individually and as a community of faith? so that we can be more fully and honestly who God calls us to be and we can fully and honestly give God praise. God is coming to establish justice on the earth. Let us be ready so that we too can rejoice on that day. Amen.